Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the podcast, not on Zoom but in person. My guest today was my guide as I climbed Mount Elbrus, a mountain I recently came back from. He's an incredible human being. He was a refugee from Palestine that grew up in Jordan that had a dream. And his dream was to climb to the highest mountain in the world. Where'd that dream come from? He doesn't know. He didn't even know where Everest was when he first researched it. He's gone on to raise over $5 million for charity. He's one of a very few number of people that have done the grand slam of mountaineering, which includes doing the seven summits and the North and the South Pole. I had a blast with this man, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy listening to his story too. Please welcome the knighted, the sir, but the king of Jordan, Mustafa Salama. This book is an epic book written by this man. Mustafa, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. Thank you. Thank you, Spencer. It's great to see you after Elbrus. It's really strange having the opportunity to have a podcast with you, <laughs> considering I've sat in a bunk next to you. <laughs> We've been in sleeping bags. I've heard you fart. <laughs> I'm not going to say what you did. So, <laughs> so you can still have a good reputation. <laughs> The kind of conditions that we had to stay in is like you you get to know people very quickly in an environment. Very like that, quickly, yeah. The first day, second, and then third day, you can let go with everything. Well, you let go. Of <laughs> well, <all yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was really interested in in your story and learning how you achieved what you've achieved, but kind of. A lot of people go out there and climb Everest. A lot of people go and climb mountains. It's kind of like, it, it's not so unusual anymore, is it? No, no. But generally, they're people that have been well-trained or well-funded. They've got, a, you know, a sensible background. You know, they've saved their money. They've, all that kind of stuff, like the normal stuff a middle-class person would do. Yeah. But you started very differently. So will you tell everybody what your beginning of your life was like, what it was like through your childhood, and why you had this crazy dream of wanting to go to the top of the highest mountain in the world. Yeah, I, um, I think my start was, I come from um, a refugee background. My mom and dad came from Palestine to Jordan, I grew up in Kuwait, uh, spent good time in the summer in a refugee camp in Jordan. Um, I had a great, uh, 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 a great time uh, in my childhood. Uh, but it wasn't very easy. It was difficult. And uh, um, really, uh, everything that I did always is helping my family. Since I finished my high school, I wanted to go uh, somewhere to Europe to get out from Jordan. Uh, I was very lucky. I was a waiter then, and I was serving a table, and this guy said, do you want to go to London? I said, yes. He said, my brother is the Jordanian ambassador in, in England, and this is where I went to England in 1992 for the first time. I uh, worked for the Jordanian ambassador for one year. I didn't like it. I didn't learn anything, and I, I, I wanted to do something a little bit more uh, uh, challenging. So I started in a kitchen working in Richmond, uh, in a jazz bar for five years, and I've learned English 
washing dishes. Uh, I used to write 10 words, two sentences every day in front of me, washing, uh, watching Sesame Street uh, in the morning <laughs> and reading the sun, which I don't anymore. Uh, but uh, that's how, and, and my whole, my dream in the kitchen was to become uh, a general manager for a five-star hotel uh, so I can travel the world. And I managed to save enough money uh, and after watching, um, after watching Mel Gibson, uh, uh, um, Braveheart, uh, I thought that's the place I want to go. I want to go to Scotland because this is where I'm going to get my freedom. And then I forgot about it a little bit, still working in the restaurant. And then I watched train spotting and I thought, that's exactly where I want to go. And this is when I moved to Scotland and I moved to Edinburgh which become my home. I joined uh, Queen Margaret University. I studied international hospitality and tourist management. I joined the Sheraton. I worked with the Sheraton, and then I become the food and beverage manager there. And I had maybe three, four years to become a general manager. I was doing really well. And in January 2004, I had a dream that I was in the top of the world and praying for peace. Now, I wake up in the middle of the night, maybe three, two o'clock in the morning. I was totally sweating, went to the kitchen, I light a cigarette, and then I Google what is the highest point in the world, and then Everest came. To be honest, I thought Everest was in the United States. I didn't think it so was. You thought Everest was in America. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. And I... The next day, I told my friend, and everyone thought that I was on drugs, or, and I, I promised them, I said, not, uh, definitely not last night, but, uh, and um, I, the journey started from there, so it was January 2004, I've never climbed a mountain before, never been in a tent, and I was smoking two bags of cigarettes every day. Uh, the, the only form of exercise I have was uh, going clapping and on Sunday, stay until Tuesday and go to work on Wednesday. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you told us quite a bit there very quickly. You, you grew up in Palestine and then in, Jordan. In, in, in Jordan, in Jordan and Kuwait, so a refugee camp in Jordan. Tell, tell me what it's like, I mean, people that have been in a refugee camp will be able to understand that, but most of us haven't. So what was it like being there? Uh, it's very cramped. It's, you know, you have about maybe 200,000 people in about two and a half kilometers square with houses that in the top of each other, uh, not a proper uh, running water or sewage. Uh, education is an in, honorable in school, which is uh, uh, managed by United Nations. And that was the, you know, 1948, when the Palestinians have to leave uh, Palestine, they had to choose to go between, uh, you know, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, some Arab countries. And uh, it wasn't very easy. It was a tough life for people to leave their houses, the big houses, the lovely, uh, you know, comfortable life to go to uh, a smaller place in the refugee camp. But I mean, we... Do you feel though, when you live in a refugee camp, do you, do you feel worthless or do you feel worthy? Do you feel, you know, because kind of like, in my experience, being in the Arab world, ego and pride are, are big things, you know. They, they, they play a big part in society over here. So did, 
how did you feel being a refugee? I mean, to be honest, I mean, did you, you don't, don't, did, didn't even you know. don't feel better. You know, you don't feel, but you feel you still have the pride. You, you know that you're going to go back one day to, to, to your country. And that is the fight that you have. And, and then you start, you know, my father always said education will be the, the, the most important things for the family. And this with this education, you will start doing something that is going to be substantial. That will help one day to go back to your country and build it again if you, if you if you grew up in a refugee camp how how important is education very important is one of the top things it doesn't matter i mean i used to work after school i used to sell halawa and uh, sweet in the refugee camp like all other families all other kids but in the same time education was uh, uh, bought by my mom and my dad that was this is the ticket to uh, uh, to do something better in life, and that was uh, the biggest things that you know for me. Education was was the most important things in my life. And so when you when you were young, even though that kind of stuff that was rammed into you by mum and dad, you know, you're constantly reminded of that. Did you really take education seriously? Yes, I, for myself, I did hundred percent. I mean, I was very good at school. I loved school. I loved reading. I, I, I wanted to, and, and even when I finished high school, I really wanted to go to university. And I actually wanted to go to India because one of my cousin was in India studying, and I really wanted to go to India and study. But my dad did not have the money to, to send me even to India. So. And I put that in my head that, you know, I wanted to have the opportunity to help my family. Because when I used to work in Richmond, I used to have this rule. 50% will go straight to my mom and dad to help my other brother and sister to stay at school. 25% I will hide and save for university. And 25% I used to, to spend, uh, 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 you know, in the daily life and all my expenses. So that 25% in about five to, let's say, seven years, it become 28,000 pounds what I saved after paying all this stuff to my uh, education because I thought if I want to be the a general manager for a five-star hotel I wanted to get the education to get it and and you know I achieved to, uh, I achieved it and I did go to university and I did study for four mm -hmm. years and I did have my degree and I joined one of the best rest, uh, hotels that I all, always wanted to work okay. and I worked very hard and I got where I went and I think living in a refugee camp and, and going through this life will give you that uh, uh, motivation to do uh, better. T tell me about when you were a kid, but how many brothers and sisters do you have? I have ten. <laughs> small family a very small family <laughs> ten brothers and sisters yeah. mum and dad yeah. all living together in a two bedroom uh, a, a very small two bedroom flat you know the kitchen is actually in a small uh, living room where my mum sit and, 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 and do all the food and remember each one of us is in a corner doing the study and my mum will have all the shoes around her so she will be doing the cutting and stuff to prepare and we all doing our homework if anybody did anything she will take one shoes and she will hit you <laughs> and you know I remember this nice corridor going round and she will do exactly the same if you're trying to run she will take that and it's like bowling it will hit you it doesn't matter where you go <laughs> so that were you know so we we did we have bunk beds so we, we have uh, three bunk beds uh, nine uh, beds above each other three and three and three 
And then uh, my mom and dad in one room. So it's very cramped place, but it was a very happy place. You know, it was it was lovely. We, you know, we have all the everything that we want, but in the little things, you know, but still we you know we have say one bike and then uh, it was my brother i remember five of us was cycling so each one of us will have one go every day so monday you have it tuesday you have it thursday you have it so but i had um you know i have an amazing childhood and my dad was my dad was involved in the theater he was doing lots of palestinian um place so we always were around that and he used to be a lorry driver in the morning and in the, at night he's in the theater and my mom was too busy looking after 10 children so so why did she stop at 10 <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> that's it <laughs> we discover condom man <laughs> so that's it <laughs> a bit late, a bit yeah. late yeah. so most people that kind of like have these these uh, ambitions and these hopes, most people don't fulfill them, do they? Most people don't take the steps. They kind of just settle and they don't leave the environment that they've been in. You know, they might venture out a bit, but they don't, you know, get on a plane and go to the other side of the world like you did. Yeah. How did you make the decision that you were going to leave? and go to the UK. How did you like make that real decision? I know you were talking to people and you were told about the Jordanian embassy, but it's, it's still a big step considering you know how you'd grown up. Yeah, totally, it was. But I, I, I know that it, it was a bigger world in there. And I think the opportunity was to get out of where I am. And that's one thing. Now, I always wanted to go to England because I, I always... Uh, I always loved William Shakespeare and my dad have these books in Arabic and and then I start watching these plays and stuff that my dad used to bring in, in English with these VG, VGS small and then but you know that what I used to hear I didn't understand much but when I went to England the first time and I heard people talking I thought you know this is doesn't sound like what Shakespeare used to speak like so I thought <laughs> Is that so? But I always wanted to. So you thought everyone spoke like Well, I thought so, yeah. <laughs> in the beginning, and I thought everyone speak. And then, you know, you have somebody, oh, what am I? I thought, okay, this is, this is definitely not. So you got to customs at the airport, and you're like, they're waiting for the customs officers to say, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well. So, yeah. That's so, I mean, but, you know, I, I thought definitely, because I, there were lots of people. When I was in Kuwait and Jordan, lots of people were going to America. It it, it never really, uh, um, I wasn't never really wanted to go there. I wanted I wanted to go where history is. This is what I thought because this is what I read and and I think it was the right decision and it was the best decision that I did when I moved to uh, to England. So you say goodbye to mum and dad. You're like I'm going. Okay. Yeah. Do they approve? Do they support you? Yeah, yeah, definitely, no? definitely support me. I mean, I didn't see them for eleven years. I couldn't go back and stuff. I was I was uh, uh, a legal immigrant that you know ran out from the embassy to go and work in the kitchen and stuff. So, but I I managed to you know stay. My focus was to help my family and uh, and 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 do my education. So I was really focused to to do this. So I was out of trouble. I I I, I did everything I can to to help also my brothers to 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 be able to finish their education.
Okay, so what did you think about when you first got to the UK? I suppose being in the Jordanian embassy, you've still got an element of, of home there to some degree because there's this familiarity with languages that are spoken in there. What was your first experience of a full English breakfast? What was your, you know, your first experience? I don't know what was blackboarding, but uh, <laughs> it was disgusting. <laughs> but, you know, I, I thought, I, you know, I went to High Bar Corner and I can see everyone talking about politics and, you know, uh, freely talking about politics. And, you know, that was a, a big thing for me. And, you know, and I, I love this sort of freedom to, you know, I was able to be myself 100% in, in one way. But also when I was in the embassy, I felt, you know, I wasn't really uh, as a free man. I thought I was somebody who was working there for, uh, uh, you know, cleaning and doing the coffee and stuff. And I wasn't allowed. I was allowed just on Sunday for three hours. So I felt I was trapped. Uh, so coming out and, and I wanted to experience, but I wanted to also learn the language. So I, I didn't speak any English then. And I'm trying to struggle to speak English. And how, how, how after Arabic, how difficult was learning English for you at first? Was it like, what on earth are they saying? How do I pronounce these words? Or You know, because at school we did learn English, but... You know, you don't practice it, so we didn't know much. Hello, my name is Mustafa, whatever, you know, very, very small. So when I uh, uh, hear it, I was very interested to learn. So that's why I used to get up early in the morning, watch Sesame Street, writing the words, trying to practice it. And I have to say, it was really... Um, you know, people helped you, you know, when you were talking and people were trying to help you to bring that because you were making the effort. So and that was the that was the biggest thing to understand the nation, the, the national mentality of any state. You really have to speak the language. And this is was my biggest motive. I couldn't afford to go to an English school to study in, in England or go to these schools. So I had to learn it myself. And I, I just got books and I, I, I tried to to do everything, try to read the newspaper and start try, uh, reading. You know, the first book I, re I read was The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. So little by little, try to read the first page, asking people what this mean. I have two great friends, Caroline and Stephen, and they helped me. We used to come back from work and have a smoke and sit down there and we talk about life and philosophy and stuff. I didn't understand much. But I wanted to understand, and, and that's how I, I, I've learned it from, you know, teaching myself, I guess. Do you think you were always curious? Oh, 100%, yeah. I mean, I, I was always curious because I always, I, I loved, I think, I think when you start reading stuff, it's when you get more curious. And I think reading was a big part of my life, and I took that from my dad. So... You spend some time, you're working in, in kitchens, you know, in, Richmond, in, yeah. in, in, in a restaurant in Richmond. Yeah, called The Naked Turtle. The Naked Turtle. Yeah, yeah. it's a wine jazz restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> you, made, you made some friends. So why, how, did you really just watch a TV show or watch a movie and that ignite the interest of Scotland? Was it as 100%, simple as that? 100%, as simple as that. We were so, in a cinema and we watched Braveheart. 
And that was like, wow, this Scotland, that's really amazing. I've never been to Scotland. I was always in England. I've never been anywhere for seven, eight years. I was just in the same place. And it's really like, okay, I have to go to Scotland. I have to go to Scotland. What was it like when you first got there? When you first uh, arrived there? Amazing. Looking at the, uh, I always remember the, 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 you know, the castle, the Edinburgh castle. And I remember going inside the Edinburgh castle and look at Edinburgh in the top of the castle. And that was, you know, I just felt, you know, I, I've never been to Palestine. I lived in Jordan. I lived in Kuwait. But that was the only place when I think, and I thought that is home. This is where I want to come back and live. And this is what I did. I, I, I quit, uh, well, I finished with my job before I was in Richmond. I was in Hitchin. And then I, I went up to uh, Scotland. I hired a van. And then I put all my stuff. And I went to Scotland and lived in a, in, in a, Min, uh, a Mento Street in Edinburgh in a basement flat. And remember, you have to put Tempe for the electricity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that. And that's where I started. I didn't know absolutely not a single soul in Scotland. I don't know anybody. And I, I went the first time I found the flat and I went back and I, I stayed in the flat. I moved in June 2008 because university was starting in September 2008 and uh, but you were living there illegally so how did you get yourself into university surely they want your documents they want to know that you're they did but you know it's uh, it's God miracles it's that you know they 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 were very kind to me and and you know she did ask me to give her the the, the passport and I said I forgot it but you know and I remind her because I did a talk at Queen Margaret University and she said, uh, and she's still working there. And she said, oh, my God, did I actually slip that? I said, yeah, you did. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I think it was, you know, I think, I, I mean, I did have the money. So I was coming as, as um, first as an international student. And, you know, by miracle, I, I, I get into university and I was very lucky. And did you, did you, or during that period where you were living in England illegally, did you feel like you were living no, illegally? No, never. You st it felt and like never. Home. It felt like, you know, nothing. I mean, you know, I mean, if you go back to the 90s, the beginning of the 90s, it wasn't like, you know, now things change. But no, not at all. You know, and I worked in the kitchen and, you know, I used to go, you know, I have my, uh, I was sharing a house with somebody and share it with Steve and Caroline. And yeah, never. I always felt everything is normal. You know, I felt like I'm home and I have no problem whatsoever. But I never... I never been in trouble. I even drive, you know, I, I also, I, I used to drive cars, so with my international license. So you used your international license for all those years? Yeah, I used to, yeah. I mean, that's what you do, <laughs> no? <laughs> a bit shady around that. All legally, all legally. My wife is a lawyer, it's covering everything. That would okay, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So let's fast forward. You spent some time in <clears throat> Scotland. You, you, you've made it home. You have this dream. Yeah. And and along the along the way in Scotland, you'd you'd been you'd been enjoying yourself. Been enjoying myself very well. So um, you know, I I, well, I, I I mean, in your book, I read it, and you know, you, you talk <laughs> about you experimenting with, with with you know, it's just not spoken about over here in this part of the world. But you're yeah, experimenting with drugs and you know, yeah, I, the, I, the party scene and stuff like that. Absolutely, and I think this is, was a big part of my life, and I think it was 
the most amazing part of my life. I, when I worked, I worked part-time in this restaurant called um, in, in Edinburgh, uh, Buffalo Grill, and I met my best friend, Mark, and, and then I met all his friends, which become all my best friend. And um, we used to, uh, yeah, we used to go clubbing to a club called Taste and, you know, go on Sunday uh, at 10 o'clock, maybe we meet, by midnight we get in the club, and then by... Monday evening, everyone go home, and Tuesday I I go to I go to work, and that was nearly every single week. And this is where we used to sit and talk, and you know, talk about everything in life. And it was it was it was amazing. And I think I've never I would never hide it to be in Paris with it and stuff. I I I actually think this is was one of the best part of my life in Edinburgh and I make my friends all my friends were uh, you know there where we used to go and and chill out and I remember I used to always have come back to work have Sunday and Monday off come back to work on Tuesday so Monday I go back home order a curry and then uh, have us have a joint wash eastenders and go to bed and go to work Mon- tuesday wednesday thursday friday <laughs> saturday work really hard maybe between 12 to 14 hours 15 hours and uh, that was my life so i worked hard and i i was studying in the same time uh, until I finished my degree and then um, and also I learned piano so because I always wanted to play Moonlight Sonata all my life and I I hired I, I uh, there is there is a, a piano shop is not far from where I used to live and I hired a piano for six months and I went and, and I got this uh, contact uh, with a piano teacher and then she uh, she said okay what I said I want to learn Moonlight Sonata I said okay you have to learn the, the, the note and I said no no, 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 just teach me how to play Molai Sonata. Six months later, I, I, I played Molai Sonata, the first and second and third movement, and I thought, that's it. I've returned back to the piano, and that's what's uh, me. I still <laughs> <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that scene has always been, I mean, I wrote, I wrote about it in my book, and, you know, and, um, but it, it's, it was good. We used to go to tea in the park every year. There is this festival, mm-hmm. like dance festival and stuff. And and this is where um, I actually, uh, t- yesterday I was having a conversation about Fat Boy Slam, uh, Norman Cook. And I always remember in tea in the park and uh, dancing tent. It was, I had the most amazing experience in there and then I took actually I, I was listening to Fat Boy Slim when I arrived at the summit and I took this uh, 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 banner saying from the top of the world to the top DJ of the world Fat Boy Slim I love you <laughs> and it was it was true because for my this music or this scene really helped me with my um South Pole, North Pole, Greenland, Everest. I always listen. In the morning, I would start with the Quran, then Nina Simone, and then I would have... So, hold House on, hold music. on. You start with the Quran. Absolutely. Then Nina Simone, uh-huh. then Fat Boy Slim. And then, ha- and then House of Music, whoever, you know, <laughs> techno, whatever. And that's what will keep me going. Uh, uh, you know, and I can tell you, I have this interview with the Financial Time, and, and this, he said, what's the two things you always take with you? I said, the Quran and techno music. And he said, am I hearing the right? Quran and techno music. I said, yes. But really helped me a lot. Like, you know, 
two months in the South Pole that if I didn't have the music, and I, I'm a very good friend with two DJs who I give them some music and they mix it for me and then I take it with me to any trips that I do if it's long trips. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let, 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 let's move forward and, 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 and learn about what happened when you decided with no experience never climbing a mountain before that you want to climb Mount Everest. Yeah. This comes to you in a dream. Yeah, I had this. It, it was more than I would say it was a real dream. Like I wake up and I, I really saw myself in the top of the world and I was totally sweating. And I wake up, I went to the kitchen, have some water, I light a cigarette and I just want to know the highest point in the world and truly i didn't know that everest was the highest point in the world or or as i said i thought i really thought everest was in america and then you know nepal and tibet came and and then i start searching until like five o'clock in the morning and i just wanted to speak to a friend of mine who's a real hiker and trekkers and you and I asked him I said listen I had a dream I want to climb Everest and you know what do you think I should do and he said you know this is not this is not an easy thing to climb Everest I said what do I need to do he said you know there is lots of stuff you need to do but listen why not contact this company called Jagged Globe and see? So I called Jagged Globe and, and you know, he said, you know, you have to do training, you have to go to 5,000, 6,000, 7,000, 8,000, and then you can go to Everest. You know, it costs lots of money. I looked how much it costs. I thought, oh my God, that's, that's not, you know, that's not very easy. But I, I, um, I thought, okay, the best way is, you know, to see a log. There is no Arab climbed Everest. There is like, you know, I thought, okay, maybe I can do, I can do that. You know, let's get some sponsorship. But how I'm going to do this? I then were able to travel to Jordan. I went there for a week. I was telling people, everyone was thinking that I was mental or, you know, <laughs> being in Scotland for too long has affected my brain. And, you know, it's like, well, what are you talking about? You know, you never ever climbed a mountain and you're still smoking too bucket of cigarettes. So I came back again to Scotland and I really wanted to have some sort of um, an article in, in a newspaper. I went and I remember this guy used to come to the Sheraton in a fine dining restaurant and he worked for the Scotsman. And I asked him and he said, okay, well, why not? Let's, uh, it's a great, it's a you great. You asked him what? To, to write an article about me. So you just went up to the customer. Yeah, yeah, no. Sitting there yeah, regularly. Yeah, yeah. Can yeah, you write yeah. an article Absolutely. about me climbing Everest? Yeah, I gave him uh, a free bottle of wine as well. So that... <laughs> <laughs> that uh, That's why For Scotsman. Absolutely. <laughs> so that helped quickly. Anyway, he said, listen, I'm going to send this guy called Stephen to take, uh, uh, you know, go to Arthur's seat. So the only time I went to Arthur's seat when I take mag uh, magic Arthur's mushroom. Seat? Arthur's seat is like a small hell in Scotland, okay. they say it's the highest, uh, what, it's about 250 meters. I remember two or three times I go with my friend and we, we have some magic mushroom and we can just, <laughs> <laughs> so that's the only time. But anyway, so we went and then the guy said, are you Mustafa who's going to climb Everest? I said, yeah, he said, you're breathing so hard. I said, well, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going to start training and stuff, you know, the idea. And then, so he said, okay, can you climb this bit? It was like a small cliff. It's not too high. And I said, I, I, can't, cli I, I can't climb this. I said, what do you mean? That's just like, uh, I said, you know, I'm, 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 I can. And so he had to lie down in, um, in um, uh, 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 
floor and then take the photo and it looks like I'm climbing a big massive cliff and it was the next day I have this uh, article in the Scotsman and all my friend was calling thinking what is going on here how did you climb this bit I said well <laughs> it's a long story <laughs> so that was the first and then of course nothing happened I sent it to some people in Jordan I thought okay the best way to do is to king of Jordan I want to get to the king of Jordan and hopefully everyone will start believing in me and because that is the culture if the top believe in you, then uh, the other will start. And then I start going on his website, and I have all these speeches for him and some universities in, in, in the UK and America. And, and then it says there that he read the Sunday Times. So I contact the guy in uh, uh, so Scotland. So hold on, slow down. So <laughs> you, you read while you're studying the King of Jordan that he likes to read the Sunday Times. The Sunday Times, time, yeah. Okay, and yeah. That's, that's something he does very frequently. Well, he does frequently, and, you know, okay. and he's talking about the young people in Jordan. They have to reach yeah. uh, other summit. You know, we are working in the young people in Jordan. This is our yeah. assist. And I thought, that's great. So I go back to uh, uh, Nigel from Scotsman, and I another bottle of wine, and I said, listen, <laughs> uh, I, 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 do, you ha do you know anybody in, in Sunday Times? He said, yes, I do, in fact, yeah. So he put me in touch, he called, I said, listen, this is, I have a dream, I wanted to do this, uh, you know, praying for peace, whatever. So Sunday time, beautiful article, climbing for peace and the King of Jordan. And you have these quotes from the King of Jordan. And then two weeks later, exactly, I have a phone call from the Royal Palace in Jordan. And I thought, okay, I was in a Sheraton and I have the phone call. And the, the, I came to my office and he said, he's going to call you in 15 minutes. And this guy from the uh, Royal Palace says, why are you writing... Um, why are you caught in His Majesty with the thought of, like, this is the intelligent office? And then, uh, and then I thought, okay, you know, this is the idea. Da, da, da. Okay, you're going to come to Jordan. I said, okay. So I flew to Jordan. I met the... Were you nervous, though? Background? I was nervous. I was a bit nervous. I was a bit nervous, yeah. And I thought, okay, I want to see where, you know, they asked me. I thought, okay, maybe I did something really wrong or not. But, you know, they were really nice. I went to the Real Palace. I sat down. And they said, okay, well, what is this? Of course, when I uh, uh, contact Jagger Globe, they said you have to do go to Merabik in April 2004. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay. Because <laughs> you're going really fast here. Okay. You, you get an article written about your dream in the Sunday Times. Yes. And then two weeks after that goes in the Sunday Times, someone from the Royal Palace yeah. in Jordan then contacts you and says, what are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. Why are you caught in his majesty? You then explain what you're trying to do. Yeah. They then summons you to the royal palace. Yeah. Okay, a couple of weeks later, mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. And then what? And then they said, you know, what is this? I said, you know, I wanted to... I wanted to take the, uh, wanted to become the first Arab, the first Jordanian to climb Mount Everest. Do you have any experience? No. What did you do? I said, I don't have any experience, but I study it and I think I can do it. And I contact this company. He said, listen, we stop you there. He said, well, what is the plan? I said, in April, I go to Merabik to train. And then in May... And then was that planned, that whole planned peak training? from Jagger Globe. You, you from Jagger Globe. Okay. Like, you know, I have this, and I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. So Jagger Globe had basically said, this is what you this need is to what do you if should you want to get there. If you want to get there, do this, and you can climb Everest in May, in April 2005. 
So this is 2004. And they get, said April go to Marabik, May go to Lakbari, 7,000 meters in Tibet. And in June, you go to Denali to climb the highest point in North America. And I was like, okay, and in July, and I said, whoa, 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 stop there. We don't want any July, we don't want anything. You go in April, you go in May, and then you go to Alaska. If you climb the highest point in North America, we take you seriously. If you don't, take all the stuff we bought you, go back to the Sheraton, and if we hear from you, it's not going to be a good end for you. So you just do that. I said, okay, great. So they said, this is how much it's going to cost. I went to Glasgow to uh, an outdoor shop, get to a guy called Ian, give him a list of what I need. And he said, you know, what carapinos do you want? What harness? <laughs> well, I, said, I said, listen, I have no idea what you're talking about. What's a carabiner? I said, what is carabiner? <laughs> so I said, listen, everything in the list here, can you just show it to me? And then, you know, so so we went through the list, have two big duffel bags. Everything is still in the tag. And then I flew to, uh, I, of course, for, with the Sheraton, my, my boss was amazing. Uh, Beater, he said, you know, we'll give you three months unpaid leave. Go and check, see, and then we take it from there. So I, I go to, um, uh, uh, I arrive in Nepal, and then I have all these bags, and this guy called Neil Short, it was the first guide, and he said, w w what is this? What, what did you do for? I said, I've never done anything before. <laughs> you know, but what, I said, well, you know, Jackie Globe got the money, so you need to get me in here and get me to Merabik. So anyway, got to Merabik. First time in my whole life I stay in a tent. It's cold. It's horrible. I'm throwing up. And it's not, I wasn't doing very well. So I've reached about 5,800 meters and I have to go down. Straight to, back to Kathmandu and straight to Tibet to climb Lakbari. Got to every space camp from the north side. This is where you go to Lakbari. Got to 6,400 snow blind because I keep taking my goggles off. Because okay. so people don't understand this kind of stuff, we yeah. need to give them a bit of perspective. Mm -hmm. So you've, 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 you've arrived with all this gear with no idea, basically. You've no idea. You, no. Don't know, you don't know what you're doing. No. no. And never bought the crampons. Never, you know, just like yourself when you came to Elgos. First time I did. Yeah, okay. <laughs> 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 I have to teach you all this stuff, but anyways. <laughs> so you, you, you have got all of this gear, you've gone up, you've gone and stayed in a tent on this mountain, which you've not done before. You feel like crap. It's, it's cold and it's miserable. And it you've was. got to climb this mountain. And with no experience at all, did any of them expect you to do it? I don't think so. There was this guy, a Scottish guy called Andy, and he was... He was taking the piss all the time. And, you know, he said, well, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm doing what you're doing. He said, but you can't, you can't even, we, we have to tell you exactly what to wear. I said, I know, but that's why I'm here. So I can learn because my goal is to climb the highest point in North America. So I don't care if I climb Merabik or I climb Lakbari. My focus is north america and if i make it to 6400 meter that's great because that's what high is so i'm acclimatized because i start learning little by little about you know uh, uh, and i start reading also i've read the first book i read was um into thin air and i start reading all this book and understand a little bit about and neil short which is the first guy he was an amazing guy who was 
trying to explain to me that, you know, you have to have it in your heart. You have to have it in your mind. It's not just, uh, you know, an idea and stuff. And, you know, I start learning little by little. And it, it wasn't easy, especially when I flew to Tibet to climb Lakbari. It was tough. I, I found the high altitude was, was hitting me little by little. But while I'm understanding what's going on in my body, I start enjoying it a bit until I had a snow blind. How did you get snow blindness? Because How does that happen? I was taking my um, uh, uh, goggles while I was at 6,200 meter on ice. I didn't think about it. I didn't know about snow blind. You know, I, I, nobody explained it to me properly, and I think I've learned it from first hand. And I, I, the Sherpa have to bring me down to base camp, uh, uh, and then there were an Italian team, an Italian doctor, and he was very kind, and he put some stuff in my eyes, and 24 hours later, I, I, I start seeing really hurt in my uh, eyes, but I thought, you know, I still have another 10 days, and I'm going to go to North America, and I got so better. Hold on, hold on. We'd, we'd, we've come down from the first summit, so yeah. the, the, royal, the royal householder said, you've got three mountains to climb, Yeah. first one, second one, third one, you've gone to the first one and you failed yes yeah absolutely in summary you you failed miser totally. miserably yeah but that's not important that's a training okay but they want you they want you to go and do it yes so you they, fail at that one yeah. so the next step is to go to the next one which was which mountain Lakpuri in uh, tibet seven thousand two hundred meters so how high had you got on the first mountain uh five eight five eight yeah so just shy of kili height yeah, yeah okay yeah. and then You've come down, and then the next one is 7,002. 200. I what reached, happened there? Um, I mean, I, 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 was, I was doing well in the beginning, but then I start getting really headaches and stuff, didn't understand. And I, you know, sitting in my tent, throwing up, all that stuff, didn't want to eat, all, all the stuff that is not Typical good symptoms, for yeah. symptoms. But, you know, I thought, okay, I'm feeling better this morning. I'll go up and do another acclimatization, and then... I took my goggles, it was very sunny, all snow, and then it hit me really bad. And then I start having really problem. Every time I open my eyes, my tears was come out. So the best comfort for me was to keep closing my eyes. And then the, the, the guide uh, uh, looked at me and she was, uh, uh, I forgot her name, Adele. She, uh, she's from England and she said, you know, you have to go down, you have a snow blind. Oh, well, why? And she explained to me and she said, okay, no problem. You go down and they will treat you. And this is when I went down with the Sherpa to... Okay, that was, that was the first mountain. Second Se mountain. That was the second mountain. Yeah. So you got snow blindness twice? No, first mountain, I didn't make the 5,800. I was feeling sick that, all so the that time. that was just sick, sick, sick. Sick, sick, and Second I have to come one, down. Second down, the snow blind, yeah. And, and tell, tell me what and, and to be honest, I wouldn't be able to make... I, I don't think I would make it to 72,000. What were your emotions like at that time, though? Were you angry, sad, um, feeling like shit, so you didn't care? You just wanted to go home? You wanted your mum? What did you feel when you were failing on the second mountain? I, I think I was looking forward for to go to Denali because that was, really? the, re that was the real deal with the royal palace but you've just failed two mountains Be because these two mountains are training and there what they said to me you train in Merabig, you train in lakbari if you make it in north america because it's one of the seven summit we will take you serious if you don't make it take all the stuff and go back home so really my focus was that denali so i'm taking this okay i'm learning i'm staying in the tent but you know uh, uh 
it wasn't easy. And I thought, you know, is this is for me? No, I don't think this is for me. I think it's better to go back to the shirt and, and just, you know, so all these thoughts, especially getting in my tent and getting sick, it's like, oh my God, this is, this is not what I thought is. It's just, I dreamed this dream, but I think it's, this is not uh, as easy as yeah. I thought. So the, the romance of it, against the reality oh the reality to, very, to, oh it hit me hard the reality hit me hard it so was like, did you did you go with enthusiasm to denali in alaska or did you go there kind of worried that you wouldn't make that i was worried not to make it but i really in my heart i knew i'm gonna get to the summit but i didn't know how but i was really like i thought okay I really had a really bad time in Two Mountain, but if I make it here, but then I have that big shock when I got to Denali and they said, oh, well, you have to carry your stuff. Well, you know, there's nobody here to carry because I thought there is some porter or Sherpa, but of course there is nobody there. So, so the audience can understand this. When, when, you, when you climb mountains in many places, you have people that help you with your big bag. So you'll have a backpack on and then you'll have a big duffel bag and they'll either carry that duffel bag up for you and put it into places that you, you, you'll be camping or staying. Um, or sometimes when you climb, you've got to take all of that stuff yourself. And Denali was one Denali, of the Denali, you have to you carry, carry your carry stuff. Everything, yourself. everything so yourself, totally. There's no, no guy with a wheelbarrow. <laughs> no, no Sherba, no porter, nobody to carry your stuff. So, so you have to really do it so all that, yourself. So that not only is it a bigger mountain in, in, in what arguably is one of the most inhospitable places on the planet up in Alaska, not only is that, but you've got a transport job moving stuff Absolutely. up and down as well yeah. so I mean, you go there you fail twice you get to Denali yeah. and you think to yourself come on yes. or do you think to yourself oh no no I thought you know when they said you have to carry your stuff but I felt really strong because I was acclimatized and I had the other team who wasn't acclimatized so I felt like really I felt amazing. I loved the place. I've never been to America in my life. I was in Alaska and Talkeetna and the whole thing, 24 hours daylight, you know, you don't have any. So it was so exciting for me. But in the same time, it was like, okay, you know, I, 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 I came back from Nepal and Tibet and I think, you know what, I can do this. I can do it. And if I do it, that's it. That's going to be the breaking point in my life. That's going to change the course of my life so i have to be really focused and and todd was my guide he was brilliant he always explaining everything i was i told him about my dream i want to climb everest in 2005 and you know so i i got into that mood and i, I felt strong so i was climatized i wasn't like going there for the first time and but it's you know carrying all this stuff I wasn't used to carry all this stuff it was about 25 kilos or something and you have to keep going up and 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 put some cash leave some food come back again go up it's cold but in the same time it was the first time we built this kitchen in the snow and we cooked these like quesadillas and stuff and you know the the American really know how to eat in the mountain and it was really exciting and uh, I shared my, 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 my tent with another guy who was experienced, who did lots of stuff. So we were talking about, you know, he said, you know, you could do it if you do this and that. And I got really excited. And uh, yeah, and then I, I was there and I summited in the 12th of June. And if, you, if, if I can go back and remember that summit day, I will never remember. But I know when I was in the summit, it was like, you know, I felt like 
that's it. That's really what I want to do. That's I belong here. I felt so strong. And then I came down. I called the Royal Palace. And then they were really happy. And then they said, okay, come back to Jordan. And then I was all over the uh, uh, newspaper, every single newspaper. You know, Mustafa Salam, climbing the highest point in North America. And that was the breaking point. I never get back. I never went back to the Sheraton after that. So, so you you became a little bit of a celebrity. A little bit, yeah. I think my family was very proud, and you know, I was, you know, I thought, cool, that's me, <laughs> <laughs> that's me in the newspaper. <laughs> not just a Scotsman, not the Sunday Time, and now in the Jordanian. <laughs> so when did you, so so once you've done that, how long after Denali did it take you to get to Everest? Then. 2005 so from june 2007 but then i thought okay listen i have to learn how to like i have no, to how learn long, all so the technicality so can understand so denali was june 2004 2004 and, and 2005 is when you did everest the, no 2008 when i succeeded in everest. When you succeeded. 2005 was my first, first attempt, attempt of everest so so I came back and I bought a great, you know, I said, okay, I have to learn how to do it, you know, all the technical stuff. And I went to Switzerland and I've, 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 I've climbed with Kinton Cool, which is one of the best uh, English climber. Uh, and he climbed Everest this year, I think it's now 14 time. And then I spent one month in Switzerland and I went and I did France, Mont Blanc, uh, Zermatt, all the 4,000 meter, Matterhorn, uh, you know, learning everything about rope technique, everything. Like uh, one month was like university, learning everything. And that gave me the confidence now to go back again. And and then I've learned about the Seven Summit. I've learned about the Seven Summit when I was in uh, Merabik from Andy, the Scottish guy. And I thought, you know what, that's great. I can do the Seven Summit because nobody did Seven Summit. And I suggested when I came back after I did Denali to the Royal Palace. And he said, let's concentrate. I said, well, I can do my training. Can I not just go to Antarctica? And Antarctica was expensive. I said, at least I can check that. But, you know, um, uh, Jaggy Globe said, you know, it's really important to go to Antarctica so I can be in the ice and land. And they said, okay, so... That was the plan, to go to Elbrus in September and then go to, uh, uh, to Chiyoyo or Shishimangma in November and then go to Antarctica in uh, uh, January and then go to Aconcagua in February and go to Everest. And that will be a brilliant. And they were very kind and I have this great sponsorship from Jordanian companies and I went off and... Um, that's why I did. So it was a mountain after a mountain after a mountain. And I did my first 8,000 meter to go to Shigmama, which wasn't very easy. But then reading a lot of book, reading there is a book called Annapurna, one, one of the best book written for 8,000 meter. And it's the first ever 8,000 meter being climbed before Everest. And I go into that and I start really, I found myself in the mountain. I found... You know, I always knew that I have this, you know, I, I was born as an athlete because I, I, I did lots of stuff in school. Like, you know, I did the running, I did. And then when I was at the, uh, uh, w with my dad at the um, uh, BLO, I used to do boxing. So I had that. But then I took all of this and I was, you know, I took a completely different life in, um, 
with with my hospitality and stuff. So, but then I found, and I, I really treated the mountain as a spiritual. It was more spiritual for me. It's like a, it's like going into a mosque or going into a church or going to. It, it was a beautiful things for me. So when it, it wasn't just about the. Technic technicality and the high altitude was more than that for me. It's and emotional. It was super emotional, and it's all it's all here. So uh, that was, you know, bringing all this, being in Antarctica for the first time in my life, and you know, remember, for so long time, I've never traveled. I've never were able to come out from uh, Britain. I wasn't even when I was child. You know, the only place we used to go is between Jordan and Kuwait. So I never went anywhere else. So to be in Antarctica, and then I I summited uh, Vincent Massive, the highest point in Antarctica, and then you know going to Everest. I felt so strong. That's it. I'm gonna make it. Get in the top. And then I I, I joined uh, an American company called Alpine ascent and I went to Everest stay there for six weeks seven weeks and then reached camp three we were planning to go to camp four and then the summit and then I had a bleeding ulcer and then I had to come down and that's that was the end of 2005 so and I, I was disappointed and but I was very lucky to be alive so I came back I was lucky to find more sponsors, so I trained, 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 and my motive to go 2007, to climb in Everest 2007. I arrived Everest in 2007 after doing Chiyoyo, after doing other mountain, finishing most of the seven summit. I just had Papua New Guinea and uh, Everest. Went back in 2007 and then reached base camp with the flu, and then I couldn't even cross the ice fall. I was coughing, coughing, come back, lower, lower uh, uh, a place called Namshi Bazaar at 3,000 yeah, yeah. meter, and then came back, went back up to base camp, coughing, coughing, and then I uh, uh, dislocated my ribs, and then I thought, that's it, I have to go down. So, very disappointed. So, you did, again. so your second attempt, you dislocate your ribs from the coughing? Yes, from... Coffin very firstly, yeah, yeah. yeah, violently your coffin because. So how how, how did it how did it feel having to come down again? Did that? It was it was very disappointing, uh, you know. But in the same time, I always said to myself, and I always promised myself, and promised my mom that I will always be safe, that I will always come back. I want to come back with my ten finger and ten toes. I don't want to die in the mountain. I've read all this book about all the death in the mountain. And safety was the most important thing. And in the same time, when you're in high altitude like this, there's nothing you can do. You are never going to get better. You have to leave the mountain and go down. Because if you continue to climb, you're going to stay in that mountain and you're not going to go down. So you really have to make that decision. And what's more important for you? Is it to summit or is the whole journey that will come uh, with this summit? So, so I came back, you know, same thing. It was very difficult to find sponsorship then. I have a flat in, in Edinburgh, I have my car, I tried to sell everything, and this time I couldn't go back to with an international uh, climbing company because it's more expensive. I met my best friend Lakpa, Sherpa Lakpa, and then he, uh, you know, I thought I could just climb with him, so it was cheaper, it was like half the price to climb with an international mountain company. And... Um, 
that's what I did. I went in 2008 uh, with uh, with LACPA, and in 2008 the Chinese were taking the Olympic torch up to the summit of of Everest. So it took it took 70 days to climb the mountain because we were waiting for the Chinese to climb first from the uh, from the summit there, and my. My like my goal was to climb in Jordan Independence Day, which is was the twenty fifth of May, and that's what we did. And you know, two thousand and eight was third time lucky. And I can tell you, I wasn't as fit as I was in two thousand five. I wasn't as fit when I was two thousand seven. You know, I was f of course I was fit, but in two thousand and eight was just. Uh, most beautiful climb we did. We were in the summit for 45 minutes, which doesn't happen. 45 minutes sitting there, beautiful, beautiful day. Not as the wind was so low. We sat down there, and I have my uh, um, satellite phone. I was calling my mom, my dad, the king. I was just we were sitting. My elder, a minute. You can't <laughs> say that. I was calling my mom, my dad, the king. <laughs> yeah. So you called the king of Jordan from the top of Everest. Yeah, well, they, they said to me, call, because I was in contact with his brother, Ben Sally, and he said, you know, call, and you should call anytime you arrive. And I thought I'll arrive about 12, so it's about 8 o'clock in the morning in Jordan. I thought that would be okay. But I got there early, 6.50, because me and Lakba, we didn't sleep in Camp 4. Normally, you go up, you do all your climatization, you start from Camp 2, you go to Camp 3, sleep for one night, you go to Camp 4, sleep one night, stay the whole day, and then start climbing the next, uh, uh, in the evening, get to the summit, come back to Camp 4. It was just me and him, super strong, got from Camp 2 to 3, we slept one night, 3, 4, we didn't sleep, we stayed for 3 hours, have some tea and stuff, go up to the summit, we climbed, we came back to four, we didn't sleep, we came back to three, set up, uh, go to like uh, re-camp, camp three, and then we went to camp two. So we did about 33 hours nonstop. So when I was in the top, I called my mom first, and I said, you know, mom, uh, uh, dad was up all night, and I said to my dad, my dad was so happy, he gave the phone to my mom. I said, you know, mom, I'm on the top of the world. And the first things my mom said, did you, did you, have, did you have breakfast yet? <laughs> and I said, you know, mom, I'm in the top of the world. And then, you know, I thought, okay, I need to keep some battery to call the king. So I called the king office or the central of the royal palace. And then I said, my name is Mustafa Salami. I'm climbing from the top of the world. I want to speak to his majesty. And this guy said, oh, you know, in Arabic said, la hawla wa la quwwata illa billahi al-ali al-azim. And he put the phone down. Which means? Meaning, meaning like, you know, who the fuck is this guy <laughs> calling at 3.50 a.m. because it was 3.50 a.m. in Jordan, you know, 10 to 4, asking to speak to the king. And he's in the top of the world. So nobody told him anything. So I thought, okay, what are we going to do? So try to call the mobile of Prince Ali. Calling, calling, calling until he answered. I said, you know, I'm in the top of the world. He was really happy. He said, listen, I said, you know, I, I tried to call his majesty and they put the phone down. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. So about 10 minutes later and his majesty called and, you know, somebody said, oh, his majesty in the phone. I said, uh, hello, your majesty. And he said, um, I hope you are in a summit calling me this time. I said, I am in a summit. Your Majesty, <laughs> I wouldn't call you this time if I was in a... So uh, he was very happy. It was Jordan Independence Day. And, 
you know, I took the Jordanian flag, I took the Palestinian flag, and I took the Scottish flag, and then got all the photos, and then I, I, uh, we came down, and then uh, came down to base camp, and uh, uh, His Majesty called me again with Her Majesty and, and the Crown Prince, and, you know, say congratulations, and yeah, that was, that was Everest, you know, third time lucky, and, you know, I was, I was super happy, and, you know, come down, we have a celebration, and, and uh, we came down to Namche. It was then the 29th of May when we reached Namche, and it was the anniversary of uh, uh, um, Hillary's climbing Everest. It was, I don't know how many years, but this year he died, and they had a the massive ceremony for him. So we stayed that day in Namche and then came back home. And uh, yeah, I, I, I was you know, expecting to come back to Jordan and get the, the, the knighthood and stuff, but they weren't very happy with me. So the, 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 the office took me in, in the side to give me a check and he said, just disappear and we'll call you back. And I said, you know, what's going on? What did they do? He said, why did you take the free Tibet flag on the summit? I said, you know, I just, I, I thought it was, and he said, you know, they had, a complaint from the Chinese uh, embassy saying that um, because because w the, the Chinese made sure nobody take the free Tibet flag because they were taking the torch. And I was climbing with Lakpa, who was a, you know, who's a Tibetan. I, I have a very strong feeling about Tibet, especially after I saw a Chinese soldier killing a, a, um, a Tibetan monk in Chiyoyo. And I thought there were other people who will have free Tibet, you know, lots of people. But there were an army, actually, in 2008, checking people who, and asked them if you have. So, so what, what I did when we were in Namche, I, I had my baby wives. We cut the baby wives, put the flag, and then uh, with, with the lighter, I, I closed it, and then I had it there. So when we were in Camp 4, I took the Well, you hid the free Tibet flag. Yeah, of course. Okay. I don't want to get in trouble because two people, a Canadian uh, uh, couple who have a free Tibet uh, uh, top, top uh, it was hidden, and they found it. They took them off the mountain, so I was, I was really careful. So I, I took the free Tibet thinking there is, you know, there is about 15, 20 climbers that did exactly the same. But... Go to uh, a newspaper, New York Times, and uh, uh, a Tibetan society uh, uh, magazine saying a Jordanian climber took the, took the free Tibet flag. And it was the only free Tibet flag. So I got in trouble anyway. I disappeared for about four months, and then they called me. The Real Bella said that His Majesty will see you, and then I got my uh, night. Don't say it like that. Uh -huh. Okay, people listening to this, you can't say it like that. You were knighted. Well, it's like that. He's I got my thing. It's like, it's like you, you make it sound like someone made you a cup of tea. Just being humble. You were knighted. <laughs> you were knighted by the King of Jordan. I was. I was. And it was absolutely, a, you know. That must it have was, been an incredibly proud oh, moment. Oh, it was a very proud moment. And it was, you know, and he was really happy. And, you know, he said, you know, I'm very proud of you, especially, you know, going up in uh, uh, Jordan this day. He never mentioned free Tibet or anything or what did I do. But, yeah. You know, uh, and and by then, you know, I went back to uh, to to Edinburgh, the, uh, um, to go to Edinburgh University to do um, a degree in outdoor education study, a master degree, because I thought I'm not going to be able to go back to um, 
to go back to hospitality. And it was very funny because I applied and they said, you know, you can't get in because you have to have a, a sport science degree. And I said, can I meet uh, uh, the, the professor? And Mr. Ian was the professor. And he told me that in 1997, he had to take him back 120 meters from the summit. After hearing what I told him with my story, he said, you know what? You definitely deserve a place. And while um, I started, I was working with Edinburgh International Festival. I was the head of catering an event then. And I worked, before actually that, I worked with Edinburgh Zoo. I was there for three months. Uh, uh, the, like I was helping one of the guy I worked with to to do all the catering and restaurants there and stuff. So, and that's what I did. And um, I know there one uh, mountain left, which is Papua New Guinea, to go and climb uh, Cartins Pyramids uh, and Cartins finish my Pyramid, seventh summit. Yeah. yeah. So it was one of the most you know amazing, bizarre experience, but it was brilliant experience. So I uh, yeah, that was. 2011, then I finished the Seven Summit. And um, so, just in summary, you've climbed the Seven Summits, you've climbed the Grand Slam, which is North and South Pole, and Greenland, and all because one day you had a dream that Absolutely. you wanted to hit. Just, and just tell me as we as we come to the end of this, and and, and folks. Mustafa wrote a book called Dreams of a Refugee from the Middle East to Mount Everest. And I've read this book and it's, it's a fantastic book. So go and check it out. You'll be able to find it online. It t tells this story. And as, as he's gone through this in a really kind of like matter of fact kind of way, just try and put yourself into his shoes. You're born into an environment where there's, there's nothing. You've got a big family. There's love. You want to go and experience stuff and opportunity to go and live in another country you work in kitchens you learn languages and then you watch a tv sorry a movie with william blumin wallace <laughs> and it makes you want to go to scotland and then on top of that your direction changes from wanting to be the general manager of an international hotel chain to now want to do things that people only dream about people generally genuinely only dream about that kind of stuff mm. and most people if they dream about it never really take the action because the fear of failure or the fear of the amount of effort that would be involved and so so for me it's like you always as i spent a week with you and we were up on the mountain in elbrus it's almost like you have this kind of chipper happy-go-lucky attitude mm -hmm. about stuff it's mm -hmm. almost like it's almost like nothing's impossible. Mm -hmm. Is that what you feel? Absolutely. I think it's, uh, you know, there is, there is a great uh, quote by Picasso. He said that everything you can imagine is real. And I, I, I always believe that everything you can imagine, you can make it real if you, if you do something about it. And there is a beautiful verse in the Quran. It says, in Allah that God will not change what's in you until you want to change it. And you can make the change by starting with yourself to make a bigger change. Now, yes, I did the Grand Slam, one of 16 people in the world to do what I did. But the biggest achievement for me is to fundraise $5.6 million to different charities. That is my achievement. And that's what 
the whole dream was about. Yes, I wake up and I had the dream, but it was more into that dream that I found out now to write a book, to write a children's book uh, in the Middle East, to tell the youth in the Middle East that there is nothing is impossible to widen their imagination, to look at the world in a different uh, uh, way, to look at religion in a different way. And this is where all my children book come to, to do that. And so, but I always also, there is a, a more beautiful quote by Arazi, which is one of the uh, most amazing scholars in the Arab world. And this is in the 11th century. And he said that passion if you have a passion about something, you can absolutely uh, uh, um, conquer anything uh, you put your head on it. It's, and this has become a passion. In the beginning, it was tough, but I've learned about it. But you can have the technique, which is brilliant, but I think knowledge is it's the key to be able to understand what you, everything that you do. I did go to Southampton to study um, high-altitude medicine to understand how my body works. And then it become more that I want other people, especially in the Middle East, to go and experience this uh, mountain. And I do it in a way that not just to guarantee people to get the summit, but to experience that high-altitude do you believe that people in the Middle East, because you've lived in, in the UK and, and, and Scotland and stuff like that, do you believe the mentality of people in the Middle East is different in terms of you can do anything you set your mind to is much more kind of acceptable and, 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 and embraced in the UK and far less over here? It's not the mentality. I think it's the opportunity that is given to people. It's not as in the UK and in the Western world. That's, but the mentality is there. I mean, you know, if you go back to history, if you go back to science, if you go back to philosophy, it's absolutely will blow your mind to read some of the writing that in the 11th century, 10th century from Arab uh, uh, writer. It's the opportunity that this youth doesn't have which is unfortunate. So if they have the opportunity, I think they can do something. Now, I, I try to bring or become some sort of, uh, you know, a window for these people or a role model to say, listen, I come from the same place where you came and you can absolutely go there and you can do anything you want to do. So I choose to go out of, you know, I came out from Jordan, I went to Britain, and I have to, like, I have to say that, you know, I am, I'm so proud to have my Jordanian identity, so proud to have a blood, a Palestinian blood that run in my vein, but also so proud to be British, uh, precisely Scottish. And because Scotland has given me something that nobody gave me. My dream becoming court in Scotland. And I think, you know, taking that Scottish flag with me, uh, I feel with the amazing bride because I was given the opportunity to study, to do that stuff, even in England, of course. But, you know, all this has shaped, you know, my personality and what I think. And I think if I can try to, you know, in a little bit, 
to give that to the people who I relate to, maybe also everyone can do uh, more. And now there is lots of people in the Middle East who is climbing, who is going up and doing stuff like this. There is more people climbing Everest. I mean, before 2004, how, you don't hear people climbing in the Middle East. Now you have people going to Broad Beak, going to mm-hmm. K2, doing other mm-hmm. stuff. So, you know, and I, I feel humble to be able to uh, give a little bit of light to people to see uh, the other side of the world and in, uh, in, in the same time that people can take outdoor education as, as a sport. Uh, a lot of money raised, a man that took some chances, mm-hmm. an inspiration to millions and someone I've enjoyed spending some time with. Thank, <laughs> thank, you. thank you so much for coming to no, join me on the show you. today, mate. Thank it's, you so it's much. Been, it's been a lot of fun. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So what do we learn from, from this type of conversation? What do we pick up? What resonates with you? For me, spending time with somebody that, that has that kind of positive mentality, that can-do attitude, to me, really resonates so many times that we talk ourselves out of doing something, so many times that we spend our times in fear of, of what could go wrong so that we talk ourselves out of anything that could be positive to our lives. This is a living, breathing example of a man, a similar age to me, that came from nothing and went out there and did something with his life. Maybe you should think about what you can do, how you can apply yourself, and the rewards that you'll get just from trying. If you're listening to this on iTunes, then leave us a five-star rating. I would appreciate it. Trust me, it matters. If you're listening to this on any other podcast app, give us a follow, give us a like, engage with us in some way. Because the more that you do that, the more that other people will see this content and take great value from it as we have today. I'll see you on the next episode.